About a month ago, I got an opportunity to speak in one of the chapel services at Midwestern Seminary in North Kansas City. And for a preacher, uh, when you get an opportunity to speak outside of the normal rhythms of your preaching, asked to be a guest in a pulpit somewhere, it gives you an opportunity to work out what God is doing in your life on a personal level. Because you see, when pastors are usually writing messages, we are doing it uh, for what we believe the church needs to hear. But when you get an opportunity to step outside of that and just preach a, a one-off sermon, uh, you really kind of, at least I do, kind of take as an opportunity to preach something that, that I need to hear. So my message at chapel about a month ago gave me an opportunity to wrestle with my growing realization of how God really, really views me. You see, from the moment that I surrendered to Jesus as Savior and Lord on March 26, 1978, through my sophomore year in college, my walk with Jesus was a terror-filled existence, trying to please a God who I believed was perpetually disappointed in me, and to the point that I came to believe He couldn't possibly save me. And so, over and over again, I wrestled with my salvation. And while God in His grace brought me through that, last summer, I started to notice that that wildly insecure younger version of Derek had begun to show up and was alive and well in my personal prayer life. Because sometime this past summer, I noticed that as I prayed through Scripture, I was constantly confessing to God what a loser I was. And I'm not talking about the needed confession of sin. The, the Scriptures command us to confess our sin. It is impossible to grow in grace and knowledge of Jesus Christ unless we are confessing our sin as sin to the one who has saved us from it. But I was adding to that. I was constantly giving God a growing list of the ways that He really should be disappointed in me. I can be embarrassingly shallow and undisciplined. And I know that it will come as a huge shock to you. Sometimes I can be cranky. I wish you hadn't laughed. Um, I haven't memorized enough Scripture. I haven't led enough people to Jesus. My daily devotions aren't long enough or deep enough or in this busy time of year maybe even consistent enough. See, I was, I was no longer doubting that I belonged to Jesus. I was no longer doubting my salvation, but I was continuing to doubt that I really mattered to Him. In short, I was saying to God every day, I'm, I'm a nobody that I guess you have to put up with because of Jesus. Now, my guess is that probably resonates with more than a few people here. And it's really strange because the general contours of the American suburban psyche is that we are all exceptional in every imaginable way. But I found that something strange happens in the minds of Jesus' followers. The necessary confession that we are sinners, that salvation requires us to confess, becomes the dominant understanding of how we believe God views us even after the offense of sin has been removed and we've been forgiven of that sin by the blood of Jesus. In other words, we come to God necessarily as repentant sinners. You can't come to God unless you're a repentant sinner, but we continue on in our relationship with Him, believing that we are nobodies, that He is required to tolerate, and quite frankly, He would, he would assume or, or prefer to, left to His own devices, just throw us into hell. 
And if that's you, our message today may be just what you need. Because today, the life of Mary proclaims to us nobody, everybody who considers yourself to be a nobody, do not be afraid. If you would please open your Bibles to Luke chapter 1, verse 26. Today, as we look at the life of the most famous nobody of all time, I want us to see three important perspective-shifting truths. And here's the first. God overshadows the limitations of nobodies. If you would find verse 26, follow along as I read, beginning in verse 26. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth, to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David, and the virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And his kingdom, there will be no end. And Mary said to the angel, How will this be? since I am a virgin. Now, one of the keys to uncovering the theme of any passage of Scripture is to look for repeated words or repeated themes. And with that in mind, it becomes pretty easy to see the theme of Luke 1, 26 through 34. I want you to notice something with me. Not once, not twice, but three times Luke tells us that she is a virgin. Once Mary uses it as her self-description, twice Luke does. Therefore, it is quite obvious that Luke is going to tremendous lengths to communicate to his audience that the girl in question was one who had never had any kind of sexual relationship with a man. Therefore, the reader is as shocked as Mary is to see that she is to become a mother. Luke's point is clear. Jesus was the product of a virgin conception. Now, we, we don't need to overlook the main reason Luke has given us this account in the first place. Doctrinally, what he's telling us is one of the most important truths in Christian theology. The biblical understanding of sin is that it's, it's carried something like a spiritual virus from generation to generation, and that everybody who is born is infected from birth. Here's how Paul puts it a man who wrote much of the New Testament in Romans chapter 5. He said, sin came into the world through one man and death through sin. And so death spread to all men because all sinned. Now, the one man that he's referring to there is Adam. Adam, the first man, served as a representative head for all of mankind when God makes an agreement with Adam that if he will obey God, Eden would be his gift and be the gift to his offspring forever and ever and ever. And had Adam maintained obedience, his blessedness would have been transferred to humanity. But because of his disobedience to God, his curse has been transferred to humanity instead. 
So theologically, the only consistent way for this curse to be addressed would be for God to provide a new representative to serve as head for humanity, one whose obedience would transmit righteousness instead of Adam's curse. The virgin birth then meant that Jesus had no generational connection to Adam, and therefore he did not inherit Adam's corruption. This allowed him to be the new head of humanity who could gain righteousness by Christ's righteousness and be absolved of the guilt of their sin through his payment on the cross for sin's penalty. That's why Luke gave us this. That's the theological reason. And we don't need to be so excited about the Christmasness of this passage and the nativity scenes in our houses that we miss the main point. But let's think for a minute about why this is important to us on the heart level, why this passage is so important to nobodies. And here's the question behind the question. Asked by Mary in verse 34 that helps us get there. She's essentially saying, God, I am so limited. I'm a nobody. How could you ever use me? On the surface of things, Mary's response to the angelic pronouncement of a baby seems very much like the response of Zechariah, who we learned about last week, the response he gives in verse 18. And yet he was punished with being made mute for doubting what the angel was saying uh, from God to him, and nothing at all happens to Mary. So why is that? Well, because despite how it may seem on the surface, their answers are not the same. Zachariah's response was a cynical response. In essence, he requests a sign to know what the angel said is true. He's saying to God, why don't you just kind of prove it to me, and then I'll believe it. Mary, on the, other, other, on the other hand, requests an explanation, born out of her sense of inadequacy. How could this be? Hers is a response of someone who sees themselves as a nobody who is weighed down with insurmountable limitation. And God's promise to her is simple. He will overshadow her limitations with his power. And here's the key. He didn't need Mary's abilities. He needed her availability. He needed her willingness. And that should be an encouragement to all of us. Because in the most important issue of our lives, our salvation, we're not just limited. Scripture says we're incapacitated. Paul, who I quoted from earlier from the book of Romans, later on says in Romans, none is righteous. He's quoting from the prophet Isaiah. None is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. But after he says we can't do anything about our salvation, he goes on to teach that God has done everything for our salvation through Jesus Christ. And so if God can do that... If God can overcome our incapacity to save ourselves and be made in right relationship with Him through the grace of Jesus Christ, overcoming our limitations to be used by Him in this life's small potatoes, Mary shows us that God overwhelms the limitations of people who perceive themselves to be nobodies and they become extraordinarily useful to Him and His kingdom purposes for this world. But then we also see this as we continue with their story. God encourages us. He encourages nobodies 
with his people, with other people who are followers of Jesus. I want you to look at verse 39. In those days Mary arose and went with haste into the hill country to a town in Judah and entered the house of Zechariah, who we learned about at the beginning of Luke chapter 1, and greeted Elizabeth, who we find out as her cousin. And when Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary, the baby leaped in her womb. And Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. And she exclaimed, remember, filled with the Holy Spirit with a loud cry, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your, of your womb. She's speaking the words of God into the life of Mary. And why is this granted to me, she continues, that the mother of my Lord should come to me? For behold, when the sound of your greeting came to my ears, the baby in my womb leaped for joy. Remember, she's pregnant with John the Baptist. And blessed is she who believed that there would be fulfillment of what was spoken to her from the Lord. Now, here's what we do. When we come to these very familiar passages about Christmas, we forget that these are real people. So here's the reality. Of, of what we're seeing here. We have a girl who historically she's probably about 13 years old, all right? So let's just think of the 13-year-old girls that we know. And she has been given a burden. And here's what she's got to go and tell everybody else about what is happening to her. No, it's okay. An angel told me <laughs> that that I would become pregnant. I want you to think of where she was in her head emotionally. I've had this experience, but I don't know what to do with it. And so she thinks of someone who may have been the godliest person she knows. And she went to her. And I want you to think of how life-giving the words of Elizabeth to 13-year-old Mary were. This is still huge. This is still outrageous to tell anybody else. But I can do it because my godly relative has told me that God is using me. God will frequently use His people to encourage those who need encouragement that they are somebody that can do God's work. Let me ask you something. In your life, can you think of an Elizabeth? Can you think of someone who told you God's at work in you, even if you're having a hard time believing it right now? I flat can. I served as a pastor, my first church, a little church in rural Tennessee, and uh, our, our little church there had the spiritual gift of objection. I mean, they, they, were, they were always, always up in arms about something. Now, part of the reason they were always up in arms about something was because I was a young knucklehead preacher, and I stood on the gas pedal of that church as hard as I could. So some of it was my own doing. Come to think of it, Grandpa Derek sometimes has the same problem of standing on the gas pedal too much. But a big part of that problem was because we had a goat in the flock who was keeping the sheep stirred up all the time. And we had one of, these, one of these famous business meetings on a Wednesday night where everybody was about ready to get in a fist fight over the church buying a computer. 
<laughs> Can you imagine? I just, buying a computer. And uh, nothing happened. Got voted down. And I went home, and I was just tired of it. I was just tired of it. And I started thinking, man, I'm just not cut out for this. This is not my thing. Anybody else can do it better. And even if they couldn't, I don't know if I want to spend the rest of my life arguing over a computer. And so I was down and wondering if this is what I should do. And our most senior of senior adults gave me a phone call. Carol Methvin. Now, I've probably told you this story before. But I've been here so long, I've told you all of my stories before. Um, and the thing about it is that makes it okay is that you all don't remember any of them. So, <laughs> so, so Carol called me and he said, Maxine and I would like to have you over for lunch. And so on a rainy day, I think it was in February, I went over to their house and they served me a nice little lunch, soup is what I remember. And after it was over, Carol said, uh, Derek, we want you to know that Maxine and I love you. And we want you to know that a whole lot of people in our church love you as well. And we are not going to let a group of people who are always upset ruin the life of a preacher before that life ever really gets started. So here's a check. Go buy the computer. Now, the importance of that is not the check. I mean, it, 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 wasn't, it wasn't that. The importance of this was I didn't know whether I could keep doing what God had called me to do. And two people, my Elizabeths, came to me and said, God's at work in your life, and we want you to hang in there. I don't know, I really don't know how my life would be different if they hadn't called me over for soup. I really don't. I mean, the Lynch family has had a, a very different life because Carol and Maxine Methvin, two senior adults, had me over for soup. Carol died four years ago. Maxine died a year ago, 96 and 97 years old. And as long as they lived, they were people who made an incredible difference for me. Here's the thing I'm trying to say. Elizabeth was someone who helped Mary keep going. And that's how God is able to, to overcome the sense of nobodiness that we all feel. If we are connected with his people and if we are seeking out his people, we can find the encouragement that we need to be able to do what God is calling us to do. God encourages us through his people, the church. But most exciting of all, God tells his story through nobodies. He really does. Uh, let's read Mary's joy-filled words in response to Elizabeth. They're known as the Magnificat, which uh, is, is, is known as that because the first word in the Latin text of these verses is magnify or magnificat. And I want, let's look at verse 46 where Mary gets started. Mary said, My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. For he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. For behold, from now on all generations will call me blessed. For he, is, he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. 
and his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. And he has filled the hungry with good things, and the rich he has sent away empty. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he has spoken to our fathers, to Abraham and to his offspring forever. And Mary remained with her about three months and returned to her home. Here's another little thing that might help you as, as you're reading Scripture. One of the chief ways the New Testament writers, especially Luke who wrote Luke, shows us that what they are writing is really, really important to the story they're telling is their use of time. For instance, in the, in the other book that Luke wrote, the book of Acts, the narrative of events that he gives starts off very slowly and with a whole lot of detail. And then many, many years are covered in the span of a few chapters. And, and, then, and then Luke slows down again, and he provides great detail about an event, uh, this time the, the, the conversion of Paul. And then he speeds up again, and then he slows down again when he gets to the end, uh, really to a crawl to kind of detail the, uh, the account of, of Paul's arrest in Jerusalem and transfer to Rome. So, so that's how Luke says, really pay attention to this. He slows down the timeline. And so far in Luke's description of the events leading up to the birth of Christ, he's really moved pretty quickly. Uh, there has been no major speech. He doesn't linger over any one event for too long. But when we get to Mary's meeting with Elizabeth, he slows way down. And then when we get to Mary's song, I mean, he, he slams on the brakes so anytime you see the pace of action slowing down in Luke or in its sequel, Acts, take time to figure out why. So why is the Magnificat, why is, why is Mary's song so important to Luke? And here it is. When you look at it carefully, Mary's song provides a preview of the ministry of Christ. And from it come the themes that Luke will weave through his retelling of Christ's life. In a book on the book of Luke, uh, an author named Joel Green says this. He says, this song outlines a selection of forms that opposition to God's purposes has taken over the years. Here are the forms. Oppression of people, pride, claims of power, wealth. And it is against such opposing forces that God has come to do war through Jesus. Now, now sometime on your own, I invite you to study Luke in depth, and I want you to see who the opponents of Christ were. Persons who grasp for social respect and positions of honor. Those who exclude the less fortunate and the socially unacceptable. And those who enjoy the power they have over others. And so once you see that, you can see what Mary's song is doing. She is prophetically announcing what kind of ministry that Christ would have, and here's the deal, she's the first to do it. A 13-year-old girl in Jewish culture who had only the voice her father would give her, and then after she was married, only the voice her husband would give her. A Jewish girl, a nobody, is the first that God uses to tell the story of Jesus. The God Mary praises is a God at work 
turning the world and its value system on its head for the purpose of establishing the kingdom. God was sending a Savior to the world to save individuals and to redeem society, and God used this nobody, a girl that no one would have thought of, to to be the very first somebody to announce to the world the work that Jesus had come to do. So I want you to think about something with me. The message of Jesus makes nobodies somebodies. It makes us somebody in the sense that in hearing the message of Jesus, we are transferred from the domain of darkness and delivered into the kingdom of His beloved Son. The message of Jesus moves us from death to life, from hell to eternity, from slaves to sons and daughters and heirs of the living God who is king of all things. The message of Jesus makes nobody somebody's when we hear it and receive it and respond to him as Lord and Savior. But it also makes us somebody's when we share it. In Acts 1, Jesus tells a group of 120 nobodies, literally nobodies, men and women whom others in their world wouldn't have given the time of day. Jesus tells that group of nobodies that they will be his witnesses. These nobodies will become the expert witnesses to the facts of Jesus' life and the resurrection of Jesus to the rest of the world. So if our chief purpose is to love God and enjoy Him forever, then our primary earthly task is to make Him known. And so if we are making Him known, if we are telling the story of Jesus to others, that makes the middle school boy of more importance than the President of the United States. That makes you, the person who has the message of Jesus, anytime you are interacting with anybody, family, friends, co-worker, who doesn't know Jesus as Savior. That makes you, in their lives, literally the most important person in the world. I am not speaking hyperbolically. I am saying to you that the only logical conclusion that you can draw from Scripture is that when we hold the message of Jesus, we're never nobody. We are the most important somebodies the world has ever known. So feeling defeated... And voicing lament all the time about all of the things that you think are amiss in the world is a betrayal of the gift that you have been given. The message of Jesus. The most important words that anybody has ever been given. All that is required of us is willingness. And an understanding that it isn't about us. That the fact that God uses nobodies makes it unmistakable that the power is with God and not with us. And so what are we supposed to do with this today? Well, here's what I'd like to do. I'd like to have, a, as we close, a guided prayer exercise, something like what we did last week, and kind of walk through what we have learned together in prayer with the Lord. So if you would please kind of put your stuff away And if you would, join me in prayer.